You're listening to The Extra Real with Jerry Brown and Colin Ryan for a look at the bigger picture of film. With films from around the world. Through the decades. From movies you know and love. To movies you need to discover. This week on the show, it's our Halloween horror special. So, myself and Colin, we're going to look at six horror films. We'll talk a bit about our selection criteria in a minute. But, uh, yeah, so this episode, six, six, a whopping six, six films. films. So, Colin, one of the big things about picking six films in any genre is if you get if you go towards kind of... If you're talking about lists, uh, that's a hiding to nothing. So, this isn't like an exclusive list of the six best films. These are probably six films that we selected because we feel like we want to watch them. Uh, certainly that's the way I've approached it with the with the films that I've picked and that there are films that I, I for one reason or another, I either love them or, or there's something about them that I think is ripe for either rediscovery uh, and that people need to kind of go back to or look at. So what was your reason for picking your films? Um, I love coming to films with like a fresh set of eyes. Um, like two of the films I hadn't seen before, but I read a good bit about or they've been maybe recommended to me. Um, and the third film I picked was one I'd seen in the cinema, but hadn't rewatched since. And the first time I liked it, but I couldn't get what it was that was so great about it and i think on the second viewing i got a lot more out of it yeah so for my picks i've gone with the night of the living dead the 1968 original i've gone with the 1977 suspiria original and i'm sure if there had been an original which is the only version of it i probably would have gone with it but near dark from 1987 by Catherine bigelow and uh, what did you go with i went for the house of the devil uh, directed by ty west and it was actually recommended to me by the uh, the show's composer, Ben Hall. Um, I've gone for The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, uh, also directed by Dario Argento from 1970. And I've gone for Ari Aster's film, Hereditary, from 2018. There are so many great films that we could have looked at and so many different variations. We've gone from stuff that re- pretty much spans from the, the late 60s up to the present day. And we're not in any way ignoring, you know... There's a the, the very inception of film. There's great horror films, or there's the the horror genre has been tackled, and you know, look at these are films that probably benefit from the likes of German expressionism, that benefit from yeah the work of the likes of Jack Turner or Val Luton and all of that. So th- these are films that have, I suppose, our selections are films that are feeding off of all of those things and literature and stuff in general as well. So, so, yeah. Um, so I went with the the Night of the Living Dead simply because shock horror I haven't seen it. It was it wasn't one that I grew up with. It was it's not a it, it's not um, uh, one that I had any burning desire to see. In fact, it probably snobbishly you know when your Twitter handle is Irish Film Snob, you've got to embrace it. <laughs> I probably ignored it, and uh, which is really bad form. I flicked it on, and something that I was really impressed with is the documentary realism of the film and just again like i think pretty much all of the films that i've selected and i'm pretty much sure with some of the ones that i've seen on your list that the sound design is just so important super important and um i i just thought it was 
like it's seen as a seminal film with all of the with the connections to things like the civil rights movement and stuff like that and for anyone who hasn't seen it which I, I think is pretty few and far between it's basically seven people barricaded in a house with a load of zombies coming at them um, I mean that concept alone is just brilliant Yeah. so it shouldn't be a bag of rubbish and it isn't I just thought that casting wise they all seem pretty much on the money for us Dwayne Jones is Ben Night of the Living Dead it's not the, his African American origin isn't referenced so that side of it is important was that a, a major factor for me the other night not really um, I thought it's the building of tension uh, when they're in the house and the paranoia between the group I thought was interesting I think if it falls down in any any area it's that maybe some of the action isn't as dynamic that of films that, that came after it and maybe some of the music is a little bit um, OTT for my liking but the, the, in general the sound design is cool and the end of it with the documentary realism is really it's quite vicious actually it really hits home and it's one of those things where that I really like about the genre is that you don't have to have a happy ending all the time and that's when I when I see some some more modern horror films you're like and you you see the ending and it's it's a happy ending you're like really you've just not really bothered here have you you know so that's that's my feeling on Night of the Living Dead have, have you seen that I think I have, but it's been a long, long time. I was one of those people who grew up with the whole kind of Channel 4 and Bravo late night kind of viewing on Friday and Saturday nights once the parents had gone to bed kind of thing. I yeah. up till 2 a.m. watching horror films. I think I saw it uh, during that time, but I haven't seen it since. Uh, would you think it's definitely worth a rewatch? Oh, I, I, I would. And like it's made me want to watch the Tom Savini remake and I know there's another remake in 2006. And like... The one thing that's striking about it is obviously it's in black and white and yeah. the fact that it was colorized in the 80s. So they had that fad for colorizing everything around the mid 80s to the 90s. Yeah. I can't imagine it being an asset to it. Like it never looks no. good anyway. It's a it's a stark contrast to, to another pick of mine, Suspiria, where color is like really everything. dominant. <laughs> everything yeah. about the film. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think it's We've seen it with some um, more recent horror films going back to black and white. And I think that's an approach that really works as well as lighting everything with primary colors. So, um, and I think sometimes works even more. So like there are other films that I was thinking of that were like uh, some of my favorite horror films are black and white, Uh, whether it's something like the cat people or I walked with a zombie or ones that have really kind of come to recently, films like Coronico, and uh, not strictly speaking a horror film, but Marquette Lazarova has elements of of uh, horror films. That stark black and whiteness really works. Yeah. So give us one of your picks. So yeah, so it's it's interesting you say uh, there's a bit of a weird segue uh, from Night of the Living Dead to The House of the Devil uh, from 2009, directed by Ty West, in that there is a scene in the film where the character is watching the protagonist, uh, uh, Samantha Hughes, played by Jocelyn Dunn, who is watching Night of the Living Dead on right. the TV. So uh, basically, I mean, I story... watched it deliberately just so we could have that segue, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's about like this struggling uh, college student who takes on a babysitting assignment at an isolated house 
where things take a turn for the worse. So it's not exactly an original film, I guess. And it's um, kind of more deals with the the occult and stuff like that. But um, what makes it so brilliant, I think, is how it's shot. It's shot on 16mm. It's got like lots of this it starts off with like kind of 80s style music. You can tell it's kind of set in like 1983 or something like that. It's got all these kind of 80s style slow zooms, freeze frames, um, you know, kind of this kind of yellow writing stuff into say directed by and starring and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's very much kind of a, a character led piece. Um, so you kind of follow this character, Samantha, for the whole film. And you can see that she, at the start, she's um, trying to get somewhere to live because her housing situation is awful. Her her housemate who lives in the same room as her is just a complete slob. Um, and you can tell from the character that she's she's kind of struggling. And even though she's got a, her best friend, Megan, who's played by Greta Gerwig in one of her earlier roles, um, seems to be from a rich family and offers to help her out. Uh, Samantha's like, no, look, I need to get some money. So she picks up an ad and it advertises this kind of babysitting assignment. And... Uh, when she kind of tries to meet the person who she calls, um, he, he st- stands her up and then she's like, oh, screw this. And then she gets a call later and he says, look, oh, apologies about that. I had someone else that fell through. Can you please come to this address tonight? It has to be tonight. And also throughout the film, you realize that there's kind of this kind of um, eclipse happening. This kind of full lunar eclipse is going to happen. And you, everyone's talking about it, but you don't really know why. And so, so Samantha, she decides to go to this house and her friend Megan drives her, uh, Greta Gerwig character. And on the way, it's one of those typical, the house in the middle of nowhere. And when they meet the main character, Mr. Oldman, played by Tom Noonan, who you probably know from things like Manhunter and stuff like that. It's, it's got like a brilliant kind of, kind of, I don't know, he's got a very kind of expressionless face and he's very tall. So he's kind of got this brilliant presence about him. And... He tells Samantha, he's like, look, actually, this isn't really a babysitting assignment. All you have to do is stay in the house. Um, it's actually my grandmother you're minding or my, my wife's mother you're minding. Um, but it's OK. Don't worry about it. I'll pay you $400 instead of the $100 I was originally going to pay you. And Samantha takes it. And then but her friend Megan, who was going to stay with her that for the night, she decides, you know what? Screw this. I'm gone. And from there, you kind of, you always have a sense of kind of, it's pretty much Samantha in the house on her own, but you kind of hear these odd creaks, something's off, something's a bit weird. She has, there's a brilliant scene where she's dancing around the house with her Walkman on, because it's the 80s, and she knocks over something. And then from there, she, she finds something, and it's like, oh, something's not right here. So it's kind of a film kind of about the occult and stuff like that. You can tell that the character of Mr. Oldman and his wife, they're kind of, they're this this eclipse this is the reason why they're here you know um but it's a great film i i do i do really enjoy it i mean maybe the last act isn't as good as the rest of the film at building tension but it's quite a low budget film i think the budget was less than a million for it and it kind of builds up tension by doing very simple things like little creaks little sounds it's kind of it will only show you a sudden thing really rather than like just constant jump scares or anything like that yeah, I've only seen one of Ty West's films, but I was impressed in The Valley of Violence, his Western. Yeah. But it, what it it's seemed... Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Ethan Hawke and John Travolta in it. What I found was that it's not... It, it, it didn't feel like a film that wanted to spend a whole pile of time sitting around 
with characters moping at the campfire. Not looking at hostiles, by the way. Yeah. It wanted it wanted to be fun from the get go, and it opens with a bombastic music score. So, would you feel? Did you feel like that this film was a lean genre piece that wanted to entertain? Yeah, very much so. I feel like because I'd seen his film The Innkeepers uh, a few years ago, and I loved that as well. I loved how it just built tension solely. But yeah, he's really like I think one thing with some horror films, they can maybe character kind of can go out the window because it's just looking for a jump scare or something like that um, but I love here that just sticks with the characters and it's kind of just little things a character can say or do can change everything um, and I did actually love that it was kind of a character led piece it was kind of a nice it was kind of a cool way to show how to make a horror film it doesn't have to be all let's show you this piece of gory stuff or let's show you this it's, you can actually just have kind of the human drama at the centre of it you know your next one is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so, yeah, directed by Dario Argento. So we both, and, uh, I mean, we're both gone for Argento. So that says an awful yeah. lot about his place in the genre. No, definitely. And it's his, it's his first film he directed, isn't it? Yeah. So himself, prior to yeah. that, he'd written a couple of spaghetti westerns and a few other bits and pieces. Yeah. I would say check out Five Man Army. And I would say, obviously, he did his little bit of work with Leone on Once Leone Upon a Time in the West. The West, yeah. But check out Five Man Army if you want something that's slight but entertaining. Yeah. Lots of action. So it's about this American writer who is has a bit of writer's block, and he's. It's a bit of a strange. It starts a bit strange, I felt, because it was like this American writer. He has writer's block, so he's told go to Rome, relax, and then he takes on a job, writing manuals about rare birds. <laughs> so straight yeah. away, that like that's that's a real Argento thing, I think, because it's like the story will be straightforward in a sense, but it will always have this kind of weirdness and strangeness to it, you know? And you have, uh, you know, the cast is pretty cool. You've got uh, Tony Massante as Sam Damas, uh, Susie Kendall as his girlfriend, Julia. Uh, what's his name? Inspector Marcini, Enrico Mayo Salerno. I think my favorite character in the whole thing was uh, the pimp Garulo. Yeah. Played by uh, Gildo DeMarco, because he's got like just this amazing face and the way he speaks and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it's about this kind of writer who's got writer's block, and he, he sees a woman being attacked in an art gallery, and he goes to help her, but then he's kind of locked in between these two glass doors, and from there, there's like a police investigation, but he finds himself kind of carried into that investigation, and you know, it's it's you know, it's it was a very like popular film. I think it played at like a Milan cinema for like three and a half years. Um, it's it's seen as one of the first films of the Giallo era as well. Um, there's cool little things in it like like that Argento put his own hands in for the murder scene so there's scenes where it's just shots of hands and stuff like that and that's that's kind of interesting there's obviously Argento would be, would be known for and you're going to talk about soon is probably his use of colour production design is amazing uh, there's a kind of uh, iconic kind of bus bus station scene where where uh, Sam Damas has been chased by this other this kind of other guy who's trying to kill him um, and it's it's a real kind of like the film goes in all these different twists and turns in the plot and stuff like that because obviously he's kind of on this the hunt for this kind of serial killer who's going around killing these young women who seem to live on their own and you kind of don't really know where it's going to go and you know it's got like the music is, is by Ennio Morricone and the score is interesting it's not exactly a, a typical horror score I felt it's very kind of light and breezy you know yeah and 
And Vittorio Storaro, of course, uh, was a cinematographer, and it's his first film in colour as well, and it's you know beautiful to look at. What about things like the identity of the the murderer? Was that uh, was that something that was important to you, or you don't want to have a spoiler, do you? Uh, well, I, I, I think you I, know, I, it's fifty I, years I, old by now. Away, I think people know? haven't seen it, you know. Um, that it's Ava kind Rainsy. of the yeah. He find, he finds out that the woman he thought he was going to save in the art gallery is actually criminally insane, and she's been the one along with her husband who've been kind of you know committing all these murders around uh, around Rome. Um, yeah, it's a strange one. I think Eva Renzi wasn't a big fan of the film. I think she no. almost disowned it afterwards. But it was obviously a huge hit. Um, yeah, that's kind of like, and also there's kind of a cool like like kind of camera stuff within it. In that uh, apparently, uh, when Alberto Ranieri, went, her husband, when he jumps out of the window, they took a camera and threw it out a window, <laughs> and broke it. But the actual footage was still intact. Right, didn't um, know that. And there's also that scene. I I really enjoyed that scene where he meets the artist. Yeah. Who has these uh, questionable, questionable food choices? Yeah. He likes his cats a bit too much. A little bit too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and the characters I thought was interesting was police chief, because I mean at the time there was an awful lot of corruption and stuff like that, and I don't think an yeah. awful lot of the young people in in italy had much love for the cops because it was kind of a rebellious period there was an awful lot of uh, social unrest and apparently yeah. the cops could just stop you particularly students and stuff they could just stop you on the street and uh so i thought it was interesting that they're like the initial stuff with musanti and whatever where he's being interrogated like he feels like he's being wronged and you can kind of see that coming through yeah and he's yeah. trying to return to america and they're like Give yeah. us your passport. Give us you your passport. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. For me, it's a film that works in fits and starts. I think the set pieces are cool. Like the, the foot chase, the yeah. like some of the murders are inventive. The sound design is frightening. Yeah. And the end revelation stuff, it works. <laughs> but it's like, right, off you go, back on the plane. There you go. <laughs> bye bye. Yeah, yeah. It's like it is it is like it is very Hitchcockian in a sense but yeah it's also a bit less dry it's it's kind of more fun I guess in ways yeah there's like weird elements of comedy that just come out of nowhere um so you're kind of like trying to get into this like almost like figure out this whole mystery of it and then you'll just have this bizarre scene like even in that that uh scene where he's being chased by this guy in this yellow jacket yeah and then he goes to he, he follows and then it's like cat and mouse and then suddenly he becomes a cat and follows the guy in the yellow jacket and then he goes to this like like kind of ex-boxers conference and they're all wearing these yellow jackets and it's just like when you're writing a script where did this scene even come from you know yeah and what does it add you know yeah I, I, I suppose it is it's in that sense it's more fun than some of those other maybe Hitchcock knockoffs and obviously we're, we're yeah. you know they're they're living in a post psycho post peeping tom world uh, where all of those influencers are kind of circling um and then you've got i think afterwards there was like a slew of jallos where the the woman was the the the, the person who did it like you know it was yeah. female um villains and whatnot so argento was super influential on on the genre as a whole for a number of years and while he made a few of those he got tired of it 
and that led to something like Suspiria, um, which is kind of a serious departure, really, in that it's not a straightforward giallo. I mean, it's not set in Italy. I've seen various things. Some will just say it's set in a European dance studio, dance academy. Others will say it was set in Freiburg. But it was shot around Munich, so he's not even in, in Italy. And even though some of the, the character actors are no doubt Italian, it's not really alluded to or it's not, you know, explicitly said that this person is Italian. There's a couple of things to say about Suspiria. First of all, do I prefer this to the remake? Well, I think this is this is the film for me of the two. I love Luca Guadagnino, but I and I really hoped that that film was going to be a great, great film. And I think it's got some really, really interesting stuff which was obviously bubbling around in the, the background of the original when the original film was being made things like the you know the red brigades and all of that sort of stuff and the social unrest that was going on across europe and i love the way that they incorporated incorporated that into the new one i thought the, the, the casting of tilda swinton and jewel rolls was stunt casting and i think it was unnecessary it was uh, so it, there's some really good elements in the in the new suspiria but it doesn't even come close, and I think one of the key areas that it lacked for me, despite being highly cinematic with some great sound design elements, is that it kind of lacks the fun factor. Yeah, I'm not actually a big fan of the of the remake at all. Yeah, uh, I think I went in expecting something like the original. Yeah, and it's a much slower film, and it's almost in the way that the original brings all that color onto the screen. The remake, I felt, almost drained all that colour out. Um, so, getting back to the original. It's not a film where there's a whole pile of character stuff. It's a strange one in that I feel like if you were actually to, to run it through a script analysis or run it through maybe, you know, Mickey or someone like that, <laughs> you're going to be going, well, what, where, what's, what do we know about the character at the end or what, what's her arc? Like, I have no idea what her arc is, but I'm pretty sure at the start she doesn't know what's going on, and I'm fairly sure at the end she doesn't really know much about what's going on either. <laughs> so from that point of view, it shouldn't work. But it's a film which is high on visual poetry. So we've spoken about the set design. We've spoken about the uh, the visuals, like Luciana Tavoli. I mean, it looks great. Oh, yeah. And then it's driven by the Goblin score which is, again, it's nearly in, it's integral because it kicks in and it's the sound design of the score that creates this strange unease throughout. And the scenes of violence are... They're graphic in their own way, but they're not, you know, they're not off-puttingly graphic. And, but throughout, we're peppered with lit, other little bits and pieces like the use of red, like somebody pouring a glass of wine down a sink. You know, yes, we know it's a glass of wine, but you know it might as well be blood there is that kind of shorthand with some of the elements that that ramp up the the imagined or perceived violence of the film it's a very strange film from the point of view of it's not a film where you're 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 leaning on it from the point of view of the script um it's very much the aesthetics but it really works and all of those elements combined driven together just really work I, I just think it's a film that's really really immersive it is i i saw it on a cinema screen um i think you were with me a few years ago we saw it yeah and uh 
yeah it's just a complete kind of it's an audiovisual experience and it's it's almost a film that is as you say it's not really about the plot or the characters it's just more about like i think it's kind of a film that's really kind of influenced lots of kind of modern filmmaking like someone just off the top of my head of course very popular in the shows uh, gaspar noe yeah like something like enter the void just that kind of neon lighting or climax like, yeah yeah or like someone like nicholas winning reffin uh some of his stuff kind of like that kind of use of red and use of like really kind of immersive kind of sound um and of course you've obviously got the goblin soundtrack which is nearly as famous as the film itself yeah and like the cast like i just um cast is fantastic you know um you've got jessica harper you've got um john bennett who was one of four people to be kind of in the shortlist to play scarlett o'hara um and obviously she missed out and apparently selznick gave her the opportunity to cast her 10 year old daughter as scarlett o'hara's daughter and she told him to take a running jump who else and alita valley italian actress who was in films like senso is in it udo care is in it as well so like it's uh castaways it's it's from that point of view it's great but that wouldn't be enough i mean there are plenty of horror duds that have amazing casts and you're just going well no this isn't working but this film is just it's a treat and every time you revisit it there's just something new that you find um also what's also very interesting is that the men in this film are very ineffectual they're not the accents of change or action in the film really at all and um it's the women who take the centre stage. So I suppose a lot has been levelled at Argento for being misogynistic, but um, I don't really feel like it is a misogynistic film in the way that um, that others have labelled it. Yes, the women get killed, but it's not very gratuitous. There isn't, you know, it's not a film where there's loads of gratuitous nudity or anything. So I guess, like, speaking of strong female directors, do you want to talk about uh, Carton Bigelow's Near Dark? Yeah, so um, I suppose Carton Bigelow's Near Dark is nearly the opposite in some ways when it comes to, like, the script side of things. Because it's a film where I feel like the narrative and the script and the character development is really strong. It's kind of a modern Western. It focuses on this rancher who's out in a night out and gets picked up or attempts to pick up a lady at the local bar and gets a little bit more than he bargained for. After being bitten, he's brought into a family of vampires. It's basically a, a mix of the best from the Aliens franchise. So you've got Lance Henriksen, you've got Bill Paxton, and you've got Jeanette Goldstein. The opening scene with uh, Caleb, played by Adrian Pazdar, and May, played by Jenny Rice. You know, it's it's really... if If you took the vampire element out of it, it's a really tender, intimate sequence. It, there's an, that extra element bubbling in the background. She wants to get home. He can't figure out why. He's like, oh, is your is your paw going to whoop you when you get home or something? And it's like, <laughs> no, no, there's something else bubbling. So it creates an element of drama in the scene. You've all those little elements. And when we finally get to meet all the characters, they're really well defined. In fact, Henriksen came up with his character's backstory. And like, you know, he was able, like he had, he had traced his character back to being a hundred and something years old and all this sort of stuff. And I think it was probably encouraged with the others. But in the stuff that I've seen, Henriksen is the one that talks at length about his character's backstory. He seems to be obsessive once he's cast in something um, very intense. And 
Um, there's there's loads of mad stories of Henriksen going off, just being like on the way to the set. He picked up a hitchhiker, and he was kind of dressed as he was going to be in the film, and was you know asking the guy to roll him a cigarette, and she kind of started annoying him by saying things like you know is that how you roll a cigarette? Roll it better than that. And then when he finally got the cigarette. He kind of held it up, looked at it, and like, is that really how you roll a cigarette and threw it out the window? And the guy just really wanted to get, like, I'd say he thought he was going to die on the way. And <laughs> apparently on another night, they were leaving the set late, and Paxton and himself were still dressed in their uh, their gear. And, like, Henriksen has a scar on it, and he's got, like, this ponytail that's been dipped in tar. And it's... He, you know, they they obviously looked the sight, but they were speeding down the motorway anyway, and they could see like you know, speed limits and stuff like that. But they were breaking them. Eventually, a cop pulled them over anyway, and instead of playing it cool and being sound about things, uh, Henriksen was kind of like glaring at the cop and stuff. And apparently, it got to the point where the guy was freaked out and went for his gun, but then just left them off. Paxton was saying it was a moment that they were really it was quite hairy like and he said it personally he himself because apparently back in the day when he was growing up in Fort Worth that he was a bit of um, a bit of a tear away as well and had a bit yeah. of an issue with authority so like, the two of them went hand in hand for that but like he said that was a close moment so getting back to the film there are lots of vampire films there are lots of vampire films from the 80s onwards this is a film that came out the same week as The Last Boys um, it has that look, doesn't it? It has a kind of similar. It does that kind of look, yeah. The difference is, I suppose, the budget. This is a budget of five million, and it didn't do well when it came out. So it's a film. It, I think it did about three and a half million when it came out. The Last Boys obviously blasted through it. I think the Last Boys made thirty-two million or something like that. So, but it obviously had the studio behind it pushing that for me the thing about it is it's the aesthetics like on top of the script is really strong it's got a really cool tangerine dream score who we were just eating it up at, at that time with everything from oh, wow. manhunter to to, uh, to risky business and thief. thief yeah so it's got that element to it visually it does look great and it feels like kind of a scaled down version of terminator of course it's got the same cinematographer as uh terminator adam greenberg he does a great job and there are a couple of action set pieces it's not like it's not littered with action but it's just got such a lean running time that they kind of flow well into each other um like the the climactic set piece is a, a sequence with a with a truck which is really well done uh, feels very like terminator there's a shootout which feels peckinpah-esque this would prove to be a, a stepping stone towards things like point break where she's i mean she's an action director and her action sequences in her films are usually tense also quite poetic as well like if there's sequences in films like the hurt locker where the action sequences are both tense and poetic and this has definitely got elements of that it feels like sometimes when people are trying to ape peckinpah it doesn't look great or the, the they slow down the wrong part and speed up the or you know and uh speed up the wrong part yeah kind of <laughs> there's a rawness there's a viciousness to the energy you know um yeah and so that there's a sequence with a shootout with some cops and that's pretty good but the sequence that really just wins this film for me is the there's a bar massacre and it's wow. so cool you know it's got endlessly quotable dialogue 
like finger looking good from Bill Paxton <laughs> when he kills some guy. There's a sequence where he kills another guy with the spurs on his boots and it's just the sound design of that. So it's a film with some great set pieces and a great payoff as well. I think it's one of the best vampire films. Full stop. Another thing was that they filmed it at night. Well, obviously. And uh, that 40, I think out of 47 days, 40, 40 or something of the nights were, 40 of the days were night shoots. And it was cold, even though it was set in the summertime. They obviously weren't shooting in the summertime. And so the car- the actress had to wear summer clothing and stuff. So that would be bad enough. But, you know, the way you've, you've got that vapour in your mouth and whatnot when you're mm. cold. So to get rid of that, the only way to do it without CGI, which they obviously didn't have access to at the time, was to have ice cubes in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Apparently to make the characters smoke, like their skin smoke and smolder, they um, put like the, the, the usual makeup stuff on, but they punctured it with like little holes and fed uh, tubes down through their clothes and put connected like four or five lit cigars and like ran and the smoke ran through that so it was all cigar smoke so they ended up smelling like a big old stogie um, oh, wow. yeah 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 i really want to see it actually it's it's actually quite a hard film to find online so i might have to invest in a, a dvd or blu-ray of it um, maybe i'll get okay, you a so present <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh, in 2019, my favorite film of the year was Midsummer, directed by Ari Aster. Yeah. Um, but I've gone to look at his film previous to that, Hereditary, from 2018. Um, mainly because when I, I saw it in the cinema, I saw it in a piping hot summer's day. <laughs> and it was probably the complete wrong atmosphere to see it in. Um, and it's a film with a lot going on in it. I mean, I think uh, it was a Tony Collette said that, like, Harry Astor was one of the most prepared directors she's ever worked with. And what I love about the film is that as much as it's a horror film, it's kind of more about kind of family dynamics as well. Like they did things like, like, so sorry about it is obviously after the death of like a secret grandmother, a family start to be haunted by this mysterious presence within their home. And you've got like Tony Collette as, as the mother who's like kind of this also this kind of miniatures artist. So she makes, so the film opens with an amazing shot where you see this kind of miniature house and then the camera zooms into the miniature house and then you're within the real house. Um, and she seems to paint miniatures of, or uh, make miniatures of everything that's kind of happened in her life. And obviously her and her mother had a very kind of strange, strange relationship because her mother seemed to have been involved with the occult in some way. It's kind of vague from the start, but that seems to kind of... Um, be causing a bit of an issue uh with her with her with her children uh alex wolf as her teenage son graham and then my shapiro as like her daughter charlie who's who's a bit of an odd child like she's she's obsessed with strange things like she finds um a dead bird and cuts his head off and carries it around uh she always sleeps in a treehouse stuff like that um and then you've got uh gabriel byrne as her her husband steve graham and they seem to have a good enough relationship, but you can tell it's kind of strained. And apparently one of the things that Ari Aster did was in his casting. So Gabriel Byrne and Alex Wolf had worked together before and the TV series in treatment, so they knew each other. And then Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro went to school together. 
so these three actors kind of knew each other, but Tony Collette didn't know them really. So he kind of kept her separate so that when you're watching the film, you get this idea that there's kind of this strain within the family dynamic. Um, so it's a really like, yeah, it's, it's, it's got like an amazing kind of atmosphere to it. Uh, Colin Sense's music is outstanding. Cinematography is really cool by Pavel Pagorski. Um, and yeah, I do love that a lot of the film, he uses master shots uh, for characters. So you kind of have this idea that you're looking in on them and like just little things like that. Like, um, you know, there's loads of practical effects in it. There's kind of sound scenes and stuff like that. And it's, you know, with stuff writing on chalkboards and things like that. And it's, it's kind of a film that, yeah, it's a modern horror. So it could have used a lot of CGI, but they kind of stick with practical effects throughout. Um, and there is this kind of idea throughout the film about kind of decapitation. You hear that in, in a few years ago that the character of Annie, that one morning she'd, she woke up sleepwalking and she'd covered her two children in lighter fluid and she was holding a lit match, things like that. So kind of this little kind of family history stuff comes back into it. And you've also got like the kind of the grandmother's presence throughout. You've got this kind of feeling of like, oh, something's going on here. Something bad is going to happen. And yeah, it's an excellent film. I really didn't pick up on when I first saw it. I really didn't pick up on some of the occult stuff and some of the little kind of symbols and stuff like that throughout. So it's kind of film that really, really like when you watch it again and you pick up on more of the story because the ending is so like there's so much going on towards the end of it that it really comes together well that I didn't actually feel the first time. Yeah, I think what stood out for me the first time I watched it was the oh fuck moments <laughs> yeah like yeah. it's 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 an unsettling film it's an unsettling watch a lot of it is stuff that you know there's elements with the characters like the little girl is very weird and you just wanted to stop eating at the funeral and stuff like that you know i was getting yeah. ticked off at her and uh, but there are moments in this film where you just go oh fuck <laughs> yeah big time yeah yeah that doesn't happen too often and uh, i think as you you hit the nail on the head with the the practical effects I th- personally i prefer them oh me too. me too i came to this after having seen midsummer and i think maybe if i'd seen uh hereditary first maybe i wouldn't have liked midsummer as much as i did but i thought they were both really really impressive visually just really exciting really bold purely confident filmmaking no definitely definitely and you can see he prepares so much and yeah it gets got a great performances out of the characters as well of the actors sorry um and yeah he really does stand out in the kind of the modern and i've read interviews where he kind of says oh, i'm not really a horror director but he really understands the genre very well what else did you watch over the last few weeks you've been busy kind of so in pre- prepping for this why those yeah. films and not some other films that you watched um yeah it's an interesting point i watched a lot of kind of um cool little kind of more kind of lower budget stuff i watched uh this film from 2015 called they look like people uh directed by perry blackshear which is kind of like this it's cool kind of like almost a buddy drama slash psychological horror i think people should check it out um then a film it's probably gonna be one of my favorite films of the year uh the japanese kind of horror comedy one cut of the dead uh, directed by Shinichiro Ueda from 2017. That's kind of, that's a really, I don't want to talk too much about that film because I feel people should just go watch it. Uh, 
it's a film. It's it's kind of a horror film and a comedy film, but it's it's a film about filmmaking for me and the joy of filmmaking, and that's why I would really recommend it. And then I also saw a film from this year, um, directed by Rob Savage, called Host, which takes place in a Zoom conversation. So I it's only fifty six minutes long, but I don't know if people are rushing to see it if they've been in a lot of Zoom conversations this year. Yeah, Could but it's still got downer. some kind of a bit of a downer but it's still kind of like and i wouldn't say that the film is completely successful for me but it does have some kind of cool elements to it and how it was made is extremely interesting and 56 minutes is not too taxing on the time scale exactly thank you very much for listening you can contact the show by emailing to extrareal at gmail.com search for the extra real podcast on facebook twitter and instagram you can listen to the show on spotify itunes or anywhere you get your podcast from